Lent is a, is a tricky time to, to define. Uh, what is this season of year that we're in? Is it a time of waiting? Not, not so much. That's more Advent than Lent. Is it a time of preparation? Yeah, I mean, that might be getting closer. We prepare for Holy Week, right? And more specifically, we pray, we prepare for the celebration of Easter. Is it a time of sacrifice? As we give up different elements, right, of our life. I think like Dolores said, yes, yes. This is getting even closer as we practice solidarity with Christ on the way to the cross. I actually like what Bo, our worship director, said. He said that Lent is a time where we practice Good Friday for a season of our lives. I like that. Lent is a time to take account of the wrongs, not only in the world, but in our own personal lives. It's a time to, to take an inventory, an inventory of the ways that we've fallen short of how God has asked us to live. Lent, like Bo said, is more about Good Friday than Easter Sunday. As the intense practices of Lent mirror, really, the reality of despair as a precursor to hope. That's why we read from Lamentations today. As despair is central to the themes of this epic poem about the displacement of Israel, of God's people. Uh, within the talks of Israel's displacement are intense reflections on the inventory of Israel's shortfalls. If you get time, read through Lamentations 1 and 2 this evening for just a blast of a good time, uh, as it's a rather exhaustive reflection on the ways God's people chose to live their own lives outside of how God had asked them to live. While the read can be difficult, I've really grown to appreciate uh, not only the poetry of the book, which it is. This book is a giant set of poems. It's a giant set of acrostic poems. Do you remember what an acrostic is? Yeah, yeah you do? I, I totally had to look it up. It's, I, I wrote one for you guys just to remind you of what an acrostic is. So you see on the left, A, B, C, D. Here's the poem I wrote. All I can say, being this time of year, can't stand the cold, but Detroit Tigers baseball is near. Beat the Oakland Athletics last year. Just saying, Chris Scott, intern Chris Scott. Sorry, sorry about that. This is an acrostic, though. Yeah. A, B, C, D, all the way down. So Lamentations literally is a series of acrostics in Hebrew, but we miss it, right? Because we have to translate it into English. Uh, but I think the beauty of the poetry can still be pulled out as we read. Anyway, so I, I enjoy reading through this poetry of Lamentations. Uh, but what's been really profound in the last couple of weeks reading through this has been the responsibility that the Israelites take for the state of their condition. And their condition, remember, it's key here, their, their condition is in exile. They've been ripped from their homes to distant lands. And, and they mourn. They mourn about being displaced. They mourn about being trafficked. And they mourn not only their homelessness, but here's the key piece. They mourn 
their actions that led to their homelessness in Babylon. I think in short, they, they take responsibility for their own despair. And this, this felt really unique to me. I don't know about you, but when I have conversations with people who are in despairing situations, it's often rooted in placing the blame on another, on an institution, on a system that's causing the trouble. For instance, I hear many people complain about the state of our country. I don't suppose you've ever been in one of those conversations. Where does the blame always lie? It's in the government, right? People put the blame on the government. And the irony, of course, is that we are the people who make up the government. It's similar to the complaints that I often hear about the church. Not in this church, of course. In other churches. Oh, if only the church did more of this. Oh, if only the church did less of this. Oh, if we only got a decent preacher. Oh, if only we had more fellowship events. And the irony, of, cor of course, <clears throat> being that it's people that make up the church. And we're part of a deep-seated tradition that it's the church's responsibility, people in the church, to change it. Renee and Jeanette thought, you know what? We don't have a retreat. We need to get away. It's a loud, crazy city we live in. We need to get away. I said, great idea. And you knew what was coming right after that. <laughs> Let me know how I can help you plan it. And they did it, and it was awesome. It was a great start for us getting into retreats. <clears throat> People in the church love to play the blame game. And the blame always seems to fall on the institution of which the people make up. The Israelites, refreshingly, play the blame game in the book of Lamentations, but the blame often falls on themselves for the poor decisions they've made. So refreshing. Here's Lamentations 1, verse 8, if you want to follow along. We're going to go through this pretty intensely. Jerusalem sinned grievously, the poet writes. So she has become a mockery. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. They're not sweeping their sins under the rug, right? Pretending like it's not there? Not at all. They're naming it, and they are living into its repercussions. You know, we, we love to talk about the nice, soft, fluffy, graceful God um, because it can be hard to handle the accountability that our sins demand. And many, let's be honest, have been hurt by a theology too steeped in the reality of the angry, vicious, wrathful God. But the reality of our falling short of being who God asks us to be is present nonetheless. So let's not pretend like it's not there. And like I said, the, the repercussions are steep. They're really steep. Look at what the writer writes, Lamentations 3, verses 10 through 12. He says this, he writes this of God. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He led me off my way and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow 
and set me as a mark for his arrow. Jeez. You know, in, in, in short, the repercussions are, are death, right? That's what 10 through 12 are saying. Repercussions are death. And I think this ties us back in into Lent and its narrative center, like we said, on Good Friday. It turns out, of course, that Good Friday isn't all that good. It's a dark day. We could probably effectively argue that it's the worst day ever in the history of humanity. And it's a dark day because at the center of the Bible is the death of Jesus. And, and he didn't die for no reason. Right? He died for a reason. He died for humanity. And I don't mean that like in a nice way right now. Like, like Jesus died for our sins kind of way. I don't mean it that way at all. I mean he died to atone for the hells that we've created. It's what Lamentations 2 verse 13 says. If you want to look, I have it on the screen too. It says this. What can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter Zion? For vast as the sea is your ruin, who can heal you? Vast as the sea is your ruin, who can heal you? The seas, we talked about this last week, the seas in the ancient world were, were like the worst place ever. They were the places that sucked you in and didn't spit you out. They weren't nice vacation spots like we imagine the seas today. The seas were one of the most frightening things in the ancient world. The seas that we have created are vast and cause us ruin. The most frightening part of the story of the seas of ruin that God's people have caused is coming to understand the story that the poet is writing of, we've been reading from, it's, it's our story. It's the same story. It's a shared story that we have. Our seas landed Jesus on the cross and into his suffering death. Right? He died because of our seas. He died because humans kill each other. Humans kill each other in wars, and hum humans kill each other now in schools. He died because of our corruption and oppression that we put on one another. He died because of our systematic manipulation. He died because some of us are Yankee fans, no doubt. Now, to, to get more personal for us, I mean, he, he died because we don't forgive and we still think it's okay. We still think it's just, we're justified to do so. He died because we lie and we cheat. He died because we don't act when we should have. He died because uh, we skip the communion of the church for an award show. He died because of our gluttonous hoarding, our refusal to believe, our shabby moralities, our lame golden calves, our backstabbing gossip, he died because we still think it's okay to sing songs of hate that attempt to stamp out light in the name of darkness. Friends, we share the same story as that of the Israelites. And our lament needs to be the same. 
recognizing our ruin. As we put ourselves and those around us in Babylon, day after day after day after day. This is Good Friday. This is the despair. It's the precursor before hope. You know, in, in Lamentations, the course of the book hinges on this moment from which we read. Did you see the shift? I mean, all the way through chapters 1 and 2, and then a good deal of chapter 3, they lead up to verses 20 and following, specifically 20 to 24. Check these out. 20 to 24, the poet writes, My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. It's super important that we remember Lamentations as a book to draw upon for the lament of our ruin. But it's even more important to remember that we're not left there. While the Israelites were still in Babylon, and while we may still find ourselves in our own versions of Babylon, however that might look, the different stories in this room, there is hope. There is hope. We aren't left in despair. And this verse is the moment Lamentations where it twists into hope. How does hope come? I mean, hope begins from verse 20. It looks like hope begins with humility. It starts there. Go back. Look at verse 20. It says this. It says, my soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. The poet is steeped in ruin, and he begins to reflect on that ruin, not by pulling up his bootstraps, right? But instead, says, I bow down within myself and begin to remember. I begin to remember. It's a posture of humility. Then he remembers three things. He remembers the steadfast love of the Lord. He remembers God's faithfulness. And remembers that the Lord is his portion. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord is a common phrase in the Bible. We see it a lot, right? It, it, it's love like that of a caring parent. Uh, it's been fun watching the Barnts, Brandon and Teresa, grow as parents. As, as basically, uh, they began parenting the same time that our church started. Uh, and they've done really a fantastic job. I recently noted this. Okay, Brandon, Teresa's done a fantastic job. You've, you've done pretty good. I, I noted uh, when we were over at the Barnes house um, for brunch, um, something went wrong with Engada. He was, I think he was jumping inappropriately all over the furniture. And he probably had like food and juice in his mouth too and was making a mess. And, and Teresa told him to stop in a very stern fashion. 
It was Engada's response to Teresa's sternness that was most incredible in the moment. Uh, he stopped. He looked at her. He got a little bit emotional, like Engada does. And then he went right to her and gave her a big hug. He knew that while his mother was angry, that she wasn't going anywhere, right? It wasn't like after doing his third somersault on the couch, Teresa was going to say, that's it, I'm out of here. Forget this. I'm giving up on this kid. He can fend for himself. No. His shortfall didn't put his relationship with his mother at risk. And it's no different with God, as God's love is steadfast, just like Teresa's love is steadfast for Engada. It's literally incapable of dissolve. The lamenter then goes on to remember God's faithfulness, right? As he writes this poem, it's good to remember that God's people have been here before and God hasn't left them. This isn't the first time. This isn't the first rodeo, right? I don't know if you remember, there's some fruit eaten from a tree early on in a garden. There's a little flood that happened along the way. There's the creation of this golden calf. Uh, there was murder and there's rape. There was demanding a king when God said, no, really, really, I'm your king. Israel's sin certainly surpassed that of doing somersaults on a couch. They got into some nasty stuff, but God kept coming back. Not just in forgiveness, too. Not just in forgiveness, but in abundance, right? It's a key difference. I mean, sure, the Babylons or the Israelites now find themselves in Babylon. And what was next? We actually we have the luxury of knowing. We can flip ahead. I'll tell you what's next. It's another rescue from Babylon. It's another homecoming that's about to come. It's the rebuilding of the temple again after it had been destroyed. And then, a couple hundred years later, it's ultimate freedom that's offered through the Messiah that comes in Christ. God has been faithful from generation to generation. So I, I think I'm, I'm projecting a bit in my own life here. But the word is, so take, take it easy on the worry. Relax a little bit. Don't worry so much. God is faithful. God has been faithful from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. There's hope in the midst of your Babylon right now. You will be filled abundantly, abundantly. And that's where the, the, the text finishes, right? The poem finishes. God is your portion. God is your portion, the final verse says. God is enough to satisfy. So, church, as we embrace the seas of ruin that we have created in our lives in a disciplined practice of Lent, let's not leave the ruin in ruin. 
Uh, let's remember in the midst of our Good Friday night and Saturday that follows Good Friday, in the midst of humbly bowing within ourselves, that Sunday's dawn is indeed coming. And with the dawn comes a sturdy and sustainable foundation of hope. Let's be in the business of being the type of church that celebrates regularly the dawn of hope in our lives. Through the steadfast love of God as given in the Son, through the faithfulness of God in the resurrection of Christ, and through the full satisfaction that we are offered in our portion of Jesus.